You know, when you look forward to something, it doesn't necessarily mean you are looking forward to it with excitement and anticipation. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this teaching for some time. <laughs> Not with excitement and anticipation. And I even had a conversation, discussion with my wife about this, and I said, you think I should just stick this in on a Wednesday night? You know, run through it there with, with that crowd of people, or should we go Sunday morning? And she said, oh yeah, that's Wednesday night. Which immediately made me think, okay, Sunday morning it is. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's not because of Cheryl and not because of her opinion. That's because what I've discovered over the years is if, if there's a difficult teaching, we all need to be in on it. And we all need to hear it and work through it and, and process it. So I invite you to do that with me this morning. We'll read the story, let it sit, and ask the Lord to give us revelation. Judges chapter 11, verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, or Yiftach. I'll just say Jephthah, it's easier. So that he passed through Galad and Manasseh. And he passed through Mizpah of Galad. And from Mizpah of Galad, he went on to the sons of Ammon. Now he's going on to war. But Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Minit, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, or you have given your word to the Lord, do to me as you have said. Since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. And then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. Lord, there are some places in Scripture that just leave us with our mouths open and wondering what could this possibly mean? Why would you choose, even if this happened, Lord, as we know it did, why would you choose to highlight this in the Scriptures? Why would you bring this before your people? 
Why would you report on such a thing? And Lord, we can only assume that you have perfect reasons. Even as your word tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, so we believe that your word is inspired and there is a reason for every story and every event and every occurrence. We know, Lord, sin is represented, takes place, is reported on in the Bible. We understand that. But this one's a tough one, and I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you'll give us clarity by your word so that we can understand what you want us to know. Holy Spirit, we rely on you to teach us, as always, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever made an if-then promise to God? You know the one, Lord, if you bring the Seahawks back into play next season... I will never miss church for a game. I'll keep checking my phone for scores, but I'll be at church, you know. Lord, if you pay off all my credit cards, then I will give 20% of every paycheck to you and the church for the rest of my life. If that's you, please see me. Lord, Lord, if you make her fall in love with me, then I'll join the priesthood. Foolish things we say, you know, running up that hill (laughs) to make a deal with God. Things that we would pray and say, and it's like the old game show, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but how many of you used to watch the show Let's Make a Deal? You remember that, where there are two doors, choose a door, and if you open one door, there's a new car, and if you open the other one, there's a donkey. And it it was a fun show, Let's Make a Deal, And some people approach God that way. It's bargaining for blessings or haggling for help. If if you do this, Lord, well, then I, I, I'll do my thing. If you do your part, I'll do mine. Jephthah made such a vow. If you do this, then I will do this. Jephthah is the eighth guardian now of unruly Israel in the last generation Of the judges, there are 12 total. The last is Samson. We have three that come right between Jephthah and Samson. We already looked at those three Wednesday night briefly because they're barely mentioned. But this eighth guardian, this eighth judge comes along. Last generation, we're coming down to the end now. And the end is messy, I'll I'll warn you of that. There are a few more teachings before we're done with judges that I'm not, well, I'm looking forward to with trepidation. But we're gonna deal with those. Jephthah's name means He opens, yiftach, yiftach opens. He sets free, or it can also mean he lets loose. And Jephthah does. As I said Wednesday night, he does all three, and with this vow, he really lets loose. He offers a deal that ties him down to a heartbreaking loss. It's a horrible deal to make. It's it's not, he's not thinking. I think while while pastors and teachers are not in agreement as to what really happened, what took place in the story, most can agree that the vow was foolish, that he got out ahead of himself. This is not a heartbreaking loss because of the Lord, but because of Jephthah. Jephthah makes a foolish vow. God makes covenants, not deals. 
God is not a deal-making God. Roll the dice and let's see where we land, Lord. I'll do this, you do that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That is not how God functions. Ecclesiastes chapter five, and I'm gonna deal with this real quickly this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse two says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. That's a statement, by the way, of perspective. He's in heaven. He sees it. He gets it. He knows everything that's happening. You are on earth. We are confined even this morning to this sanctuary. We don't know what's going on outside these four walls other than what we check on our phones or what somebody tells us or what we discover as we leave here. God is in heaven, and the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher there, is just saying, hey, man, he sees it. You don't. So keep your mouth shut. He says, let your words be few. In verse six of Ecclesiastes chapter five, he says, do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Oh, sorry, I misspoke. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Fear God. There, there's a bit of wisdom here. The wisdom is recognize the seriousness of commitment. When you say you'll do something, when you speak the words, recognize, especially before God, this is binding, and recognize the fear of the Lord. Recognize commitment, fear God, that's wisdom. That's wisdom, it's taken me much of a lifetime and I'm still working on this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. This is the bind that Jephthah finds himself in. But Jesus says, I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, that's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Your children can, but you can't. <laughs> but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And listen, Jesus says anything beyond these is of evil. He doesn't say that anything beyond these is evil. He says anything beyond yes or no is of evil. That is, it will do more harm than good. To open my big mouth on reckless impulse, to say what's coming to mind, and, and some of us, you know, that's the challenge, especially if you're an outspoken person, if you're highly extroverted. You introverts are way out ahead of the rest of us on this one. Because you measure your words, and there are so many, and I, I'm telling you, my life, I have been one of those who's just shot off my mouth without thinking, only later to regret it. Don't shoot off your mouth. Words do matter. And that's the biblical prescription. Did Jephthah have to make this vow in the first place? And the answer is no. No, he did not. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's been called to a job. It's time to go. And yet he blurts out this, this vow that puts him in, a, in an uncompromising, very difficult position. This was on Jephthah. 
this vow. This is not on God. And again, God makes covenants, not deals. Galatians chapter five, verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Have you ever stopped to wonder why is self-control last? Is it perhaps because you need to ripen in maturity all the rest of them for self-control really to come? That self-control comes of the value of ripening love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, that these things all together will ultimately yield self-control? It's a good word. And honestly, I, I would love to just stop right there. Use Jephthah's vow as an example for our speech and our maintaining self-control and our seeking self-control by the Lord. But there's a far more profound matter that we need to get to this morning in the story that follows. But let's back up a bit. Jephthah, at the beginning of his story, at the beginning of chapter 11, appears to be a prayerful Man, Back in verse 11 of chapter 11, it tells us that Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. Before the Lord at Mizpah, he's prayerful. Check that. You see a man who's prayerful, that's a good sign. He's powerful. Verse 29 of chapter 11 says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He's got a power that comes with that. And by the way, I wanna clarify something, and it's, it's, it's really important, a correction. I said something on, on Wednesday night, and I said it in passing. I made an assumption as I was teaching that that phrase in verse 29, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, is the same phrase as in chapter six, verse 34, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Sounds the same. And in English, we would say, oh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Well, we talked about how the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Gideon, the word is lobsah, and it literally means the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. That is, indwelt him. And that is a very profound statement that the Lord came upon, didn't just come upon Gideon, but was in Gideon. Gideon was clothing for the Lord. Judges 6.34. But here where it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, I, I said, yes, yeah, the same thing. It's not the same thing. The Hebrew language is the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Did not indwell him, but came upon him. I find that interesting because we see two examples of the Holy Spirit at work, don't we? One in which with Gideon, the spirit indwells him as the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. The other one, with Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. My friends, that is a promise for all believers as well. The indwelling Spirit and the Holy Spirit coming upon Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus said to the apostles. He said to the apostles, the Spirit will come upon you, the same men who several uh, days before, a good when was it, 10 days before? No, 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 40 days before, Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit indwelt them. Now he's saying the Spirit will come upon them. There is an indwelling of the Spirit for all believers. There is also a coming upon, and the coming upon of the Holy Spirit speaks of power. 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You'll receive power, dunamis in the Greek. So the Holy Spirit coming upon, this is a picture of power. Jephthah, this prayerful man, is a powerful man because the Spirit is upon him. Prayerful, powerful, he's also promoted and you need to note this in the Bible. He is promoted as a faithful deliverer. This is how he's referred to. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11 says, The Lord sent Yerubal and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. Jephthah is referred to there by, in 1 Samuel in the positive. God did this. He sent men like Jephthah to you to deliver you. And of course, you Bible students know, again, we refer to Hebrews 11.32, time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. That verse is what makes the story of Jephthah so difficult for me. Because that verse casts Jephthah as a faithful man a man who follows through. You could almost say a man who follows through on his vows. And yet the vow seems patently pagan. How do you square this? A powerful, prayerful, promoted man in the scripture performing such a pagan act. And it was pagan. This is the way it was. Yes, these were unruly times in Israel. This book is about a lawless, renegade people. But recognize beyond Israel, these were the days of pagan human sacrifice. Where the nations of the world did so. Their firstborns sacrificed on the arms of Molech. Their, their virgin daughters sacrificed in blood sacrifice to the pagan false gods for appeasement. This was done in all the nations. And we don't have to wonder what God thought about that. We don't have to question, well, would God accept such a thing? He said in Deuteronomy 12, 31, you shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to or take away from it. God made it clear. Four times, by the way, in Torah law, you shall not sacrifice human beings. That standard has never been out of play with the Lord. It exists today. You shall not sacrifice your sons or your daughters. If ever there was a statement on abortion, that's it. You must not. You must not. And here's the Lord so absolutely clear. And so we read the story. Jephthah says, whatever comes to my door, I will offer up as a burnt offering. How can he do this? And how can he be so commended among heroes of faith when it appears as though he indeed sacrificed his own daughter? Now stay with me for a few minutes here. The story is not here to upend, but to increase faith. It is not here to cause us to walk out going, I don't get God at all. It's to help you understand him better. 
and to draw near to him. Now, in the story, the people of Gilad, Gilead, Gilead means a rocky region, and they indeed are between a rock and a hard place. They're in a tough spot. They're in the crosshairs of the Ammonites who are coming not just at Gilead, but they're coming toward the Jordan. They wanna cross the Jordan and attack Israel. So they're like first line of defense. And diplomacy has already been tried and failed. Much of chapter 11 is Jephthah sending letters of diplomacy saying, look, let's work this out. We don't have to go to war. And so it's interesting, Jephthah, while we could say the vow was a little headstrong, he had gone through the process of diplomacy. So this is a man who shows that he's capable of moving precipitously and yet carefully. And he's already tried this, but it's failed. The lines of communication are cut off. And so we pick up again in verse 29. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Galad of Manasseh and he passed through Mitzpah of Gilead and from Mitzpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Skip to verse 32. He struck them with a very great slaughter from a rower to the entrance of Manit, 20 cities as far as Abel Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. And so that's, that's a, a, the restatement of what took place. But a couple things to note about that. Number one, the Bible make, makes no direct connection between Jephthah's vow and the victory. The Bible does not say they were victorious because Jephthah made a vow. They made a deal. So God said, all right, I guess if you're willing to do that, I'll do this. No, no, no. Don't misunderstand. God gave the victory, but not because of some deal. Because while God makes covenants, he doesn't make deals. The second thing to note, though, is we don't get any war stories here. I mean, it comes and goes so quickly. You know, the, the writer makes short work of this fight against the Ammonites. We don't get any valiant scenes, no tales of glorious combat, no Lord of the Rings battles just kind of seems empty. He went against the Ammonites and came back victorious. That's all you know. Why? Because it's not the point. The victory of the Ammonites is not the point of the story. The painful aftershock is both the heart and the instruction of the story. But look again at verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand. Then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That seems pretty cut and dried, but listen for a moment. Aside from the impetuosity of the vow, there are some things we can glean here from what Jephthah was thinking we know what he said, but what's he thinking as he makes this vow? First of all, we can reason out that the only human beings that would have come walking out the door of his house were she's. Were she's. That is, Jephthah has one daughter, no sons. We don't know anything about his wife. Is she living? Had she previously died? Is she part of the deal? I, I, we don't know. She's not mentioned at all. But even if she's living, there are only two possible human beings that would have walked out the door of Jephthah's home, his wife or his daughter. Therefore, he would have said she, if he was thinking in terms of human sacrifice. 
but it's not in the feminine. It's not whatever comes out the door of my house. She shall be the Lord's and I will offer her up as a burnt offering. It's masculine. Whatever comes out the door of my house, he or it in this case, it shall be the Lord's. I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. He's not thinking she. He's not thinking my human wife, my human daughter. He may have been thinking mother-in-law, but that's not in the story either. So if he had intended human sacrifice, I think he perhaps would have been more specific. Furthermore, it's not hard to imagine that an animal would have walked out the door. And again, what we're trying to do here is get into Jephthah's mind. What is he thinking when he makes this vow? Archaeological sites in Israel have revealed this. Uh, in several places, you can see that the first floor of a common ancient Israelite dwelling had four rooms to it. And one of the four rooms was often used, and again, we have evidence of this, was used for smaller animals, actually within the house. Very indoor, outdoor, open-windowed, open-doored homes, and a room for the small animals, the lambs, the goats. Okay, some sheep, perhaps. Especially if you were a poorer family and you only have one or two, rather than them out running in the fields, you would actually bring them into the house and into that room. And so the thought of a lamb scampering out the door or a goat making its way out as, as Jephthah comes in. My dog Reggie used to do it every time I came home. There he was, tail a wagon, pee on the floor, just so happy to see me. <laughs> I don't think Jephthah even imagined that it would be his daughter walking through those doors. If he had thought, he would not have spoken. If he had realized what was going to take place when he got back from the war, I don't think he ever would have made the vow in the first place. So that gives us at least, I think, some idea of Jephthah's heart. He did not intend. This is not a pagan man. This is a man who spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. This is a man upon whom the Holy Spirit had come. This was not a man who is functioning in pagan circles. So I don't think he would have intended that at all. With Ammon routed, he happily heads for home. And verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. Does that sound at all familiar? His one and only. In fact, even in the Hebrew language, it's more obvious only child, only daughter is Yechidah. Only son would be, uh, or sorry, only, only son is Yechid. Only daughter is Yechidah. Only son is Yechid. Yechid. Yechidah, Yechid. My only daughter, my Yechidah. My only son, my Yechid. It's the feminine form, Yechidah, of the same word that is used in Genesis 22, verse 2, when God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. And here, it's your only daughter. It's the same phrase, exact same phrase, one and only and I point that out just to say that Jephthah's daughter was to him as Isaac was to Abraham. This is his one and only kid. It's his daughter, his sweet daughter. And I would even say, 
You dads who have daughters, you know, I love my boys, but my relationship with my boys and my relationship with my girls, two very different relationships. My boys, it's, it's, it's rough and tumble. It's, it's ping pong on the dining room table. And I beat Chris last night, two games out of three. <laughs> with my girls, it's daddy's girls. They're my princesses. There's a sweetness there. So they're kind of a different approach than I would have with David versus Naomi. It's just, it's just different. I love them the same. But here comes daddy's little girl. Having heard word of the victory over the Ammonites, daddy's coming home. Daddy's won. Daddy's a mighty warrior. And daddy breaks. When he saw her, he tore his clothes. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. The phrase brought me very low is brought me to my knees. Daughter, you have brought me to my knees. It wasn't the Ammonites that brought this man of valor to his knees. It was his daughter coming out the door of his house, singing to honor her father. You can imagine the scene this is not a man who is looking forward to a pagan sacrifice. This is a man who is broken before his little girl and he falls to his knees and he says, I have given my word to the Lord. And literally, your Bible may say, I cannot take it back. It's literally, I can't turn back. I can't turn back. You know, one thing before going further, one thing about Jephthah's vow, I've given my word to the Lord and there is no turning back. This is a man who sees no loopholes. I think oftentimes we in the church are really good at loopholes. Really good at it. Well, I, Lord, I know I said that, but there's a way to work around this, isn't there? We can, we, you know, that's cool. Jephthah sees no outs. There's no feigned ignorance. Well, I didn't know what I was saying. He knows what he said. And he can't turn back from it. And I ask you this morning, have you ever turned back on a commitment to the Lord? Now, before you raise your hand, please don't. But I'll tell you what, if we're all being honest here, every person seated here, yeah, every person has at some time turned back from the Lord. We have failed him. We have not followed through in faith and commitment. And one of the biggest lies of the enemy, please hear this, one of the biggest lies is that you're the only one who's failed him. You're the one who blew it. All the rest of these righteous people have it together. But you, <laughs> there's barely any grace left for you. And that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But his grace, his grace is for you. Something that's wonderful is if you're seated here this morning, I think you know that, I hope you do, or you wouldn't be here at all. Lord, I turned back, I blew it. I didn't keep my word. Praise God, our lives are not about our keeping our word, but they are about him keeping his word which is not that we have loopholes and outs. We recognize that is of the sin nature. And my prayer is, Lord, that I would become more and more a man of integrity who keeps his word, but I don't trust my word to get me to heaven. I trust his. Because God never does turn back.
But if you've ever made a vow, a promise, a commitment to the Lord, and then you took it back or tried to work around it, listen, this is why Jephthah is listed among the heroes of the faith, because he does not turn back. A man who shows you that if you make a promise to God, you keep it. Before we try to make sense, again, of what happened, faith recognizes that a vow made to God ought to be sacred, that it ought to be non-negotiable, and that what he's asking you and me to do is learn how to follow through faithfully. Learn what it means to be followers of Jesus who do not turn back. And again, before anyone wallows into guilt, for all of us, keeping our promises to God is easy until it's hard. <laughs> That's a profound statement. <laughs> keeping our promises to God, it, it, it's simple until it hurts, until it's painful, until it means that by keeping my word to him, I'm gonna have to sacrifice something that is personal and precious and very painful to me. That's when keeping our word is most difficult. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Matthew 10, 37. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I'll tell you this, as much as Jephthah loved his daughter, he loved God more. Do we take that position in our lives, in our families, God first, even before family, even before children, even before that which is most precious to me, God first. And by the way, what's interesting about that is putting the Lord first in your life, saying, I love my God more than my wife. That's the best thing that I could do for her. Because loving him more than her will make me love her more than I ever could otherwise. That's the wonder of loving God. I think about the song that Keith Green wrote. I know I've shared this before, but it's a favorite of mine. I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And the first verse, he sings about himself and his own pledge and that he will, not, he will not turn back, that he is focused on Jesus. He's gonna follow Jesus. And then the second verse, he says, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. And then the third verse, I pledge my son. And let me read you those words. I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel, though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed, and scorned. I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns. Mothers and fathers, can you look at your children and say, that's what I will teach them. Not to turn back even if it's painful and I will put my love and faithfulness to God even before ahead of my children that one day they might do the same. That's the beauty the beauty of, of loving God first is then his love compels me to love others. That as Jesus said, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Why is the second one like the first one? Because the first one compels the second. Because my love of God will make me love people more. And the Bible is clear on this. Jesus says, if you love God first, the rest will fall into place. 
that a true love of God cannot develop hatred or spite toward people, and I would underscore this, any people, even the people of that political party, even the people who are way off on that act of immorality. I mean, ask yourself, can I still love that person? Though what they do with their life is abhorrent to God, can I still love them? I'll tell you what, God does. Still loves them. Still holding out hope for them. Still offering grace to them if they would but accept it. But my job in this world is not to be the judge. My job is to be the one who loves and speaks the gospel. I can only love others more as I love him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And living for him means loving others. 1 John 4, 20, Tough verse, but it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So a faith that puts God first, even when it hurts, is the best guide to all other relationships. Husbands and wives, you want your marriage to be better? Start loving God more. Parents, you want to love your kids better? Love God more. In family situations, in friendships, in relationships, you want to be more kind to people at work? Spend more time loving Jesus, and that love will overflow. Love God above all other relationships, and all other relationships will find love in them. And sometimes doing that hurts. Sometimes loving God the most which compels you then to love others, will end up causing you pain. Verse 36. I've given my word, I cannot take it back. So she said to him, my father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And like Isaac before her, we see Jephthah's daughter as a woman of great faith. I mean, wow. She doesn't run screaming out of the house. She stands there probably as shocked as he is, realizing, in fact, I wonder because of her response, did she hear him make the vow before and is now she just realizing that she's the first one out the door? Now is it hitting her? Or did he somewhere here in verse 35, somewhere we don't have it, but he says, I gave my word to the Lord. I told him the first thing out of my house, I would sacrifice as a burnt offering and here you are, whatever the case, she knows what he vowed. That's amazing. She knows that his vow is her life. And her response here, I would have said Jephthah's daughter, she needs to be in Hebrews 11. This is a girl whose faith is huge. My father, you've given your word to Yahweh. If you've done that, she knows she knows if he's done that, he has to follow through. That's the way it is. That's faith. What an amazing girl. Verse 37, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me, a request. 
Let me alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Can I get some girlfriends with me and, and, and go off and just have a time of mourning before this takes place? And then he said, go. He sent her away for two months. She left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and she had no relations with a man. Literally, she knew no man. Thus, it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. And what should have been a joyful homecoming became a gut-wrenching horror as these two now stand at the doorway and realize what this vow means. Have a great day. <laughs> Did he do it? Did Jephthah follow through? Did he sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord? Let me give you some perspective on this. The old rabbis say yes. You can see it, you read it in Talmud, in the Midrash. They call Jephthah the least worthy of the Shofetim, judges. And, and he's the least worthy of the Shofetim, and they call him the most holy man of his generation. And the reason they do so is they say, the rabbis teach, that the point of the story is to show how bad things were in Israel that this is the standout holy guy and look what he did. And so they say, yes, in fact, he offered his daughter as a burnt offering because things were so bad, so twisted, so sick, and so pagan, even among Yahweh worshipers, they were so messed up at this point. And to the rabbi's point, that's a, a fair point. And they teach even further. In fact, there's a whole little theology about this. They say that, that while Torah does provide for substitutionary sacrifice, and it does. In fact, if you read Leviticus 27, which we did just a while ago, Leviticus 27 gives a law. It's called the Law of Valuations. It's seven verses telling what the price of redemption is for a person, a son, a daughter, husband, wife. So the implication is that Jephthah perhaps could have gotten to the high priest and said, I made this vow, I have to offer my, my daughter, what can we do? And the high priest could have said, well, there is the law of valuations. You can pay a redemption price so as not to sacrifice her. That happened with the firstborns, do you remember that? That God said every firstborn is mine, the firstborn son is mine, like the firstborn animal? But God said in the law, you sacrifice the firstborn animal. You do not sacrifice the firstborn son because human sacrifice is abhorrent to the Lord. So what do you do with the firstborn son? You pay the price of redemption and you redeem them from that blood sacrifice. Well, that law of valuation apparently could be applied in a situation like Jephthah. I made a vow to the Lord. How do you keep that vow? You pay the price of redemption. Via the law of valuation. Well, the, the old rabbis teach that Jephthah went to the high priest, a man named Phineas that year, and 
brought, went to him. Well, no, Jephthah knew he could go to him. The high priest learned about this, but Jephthah, because he was so headstrong, said, well, I'm not gonna go to the priest and ask. And the priest, because he was so headstrong, said, oh, I'm not gonna go to Jephthah and offer. This is the way the rabbis have figured it out. Are you with me? That there was a law that could let him off, but he was so brash and so arrogant and so prideful in his religion that he wouldn't do it. And that's what the rabbis teach. Again, it's a fair, it's a fair point. This inflated religious pride chose him to sacrifice his daughter instead of save her. And by the way, dumb religious pride can kill children. I've seen it happen in the church. Where dumb religious pride and extreme legalism and authoritarianism in the home kills the spirit of a child so that they're never taught the grace of God. They're never taught mercy. They're never really taught redemption because the upbringing is so harsh. And the rabbis say that's the point. That's why the story's here. Christian scholars, and it's interesting to me, Christian scholars, uh, you know, trained up on grace are very mixed on what happened. You get five Christian scholars in a room and you will get different opinions back and forth and back and forth. Jephthah did kill his daughter. Yes, he offered her as a burnt offering. There's no other way to take it. There are those who say that. And there are those on the other side. That's where I stand. And I want to explain to you why. Bottom line is when you read a story like this, all we really have to go on is what the Bible reports, right? So we have to look at the word of God. And if the word of God says this happens, then it happened. If the word of God gives hints otherwise, then we need to see that. But it's God's word that has to lead us through that. So, so let's do that. What does the Bible really say in the story of Jephthah and his daughter and this sacrifice? Seven reasons I'm gonna give you. Seven reasons over the next hour and a half that I'm gonna give you as to why I do not believe that Jephthah offered his daughter as a human sacrifice. Seven reasons. I'm gonna hit these pretty fast. Verse 31 again. He said, it shall be whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon. It shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Number one, dedication versus consummation. Or you could say conflagration you want to be more technical, dedication versus consummation. What's interesting in the language of the Hebrew here is when he says, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering, you have two things there. You have dedication, it shall be the Lord, the Lord's, I dedicate to the Lord, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That is consummation, and so you could say, well, yeah, it's the same thing, the consummation of the dedication, right? The thing is, the word and, it shall be the Lord's and is va in the Hebrew, and it's a conjunction. It shall be the Lord's and I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. But it also, the same word is a disjunction in the Hebrew. That is, it shall be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now that's very different, isn't it? Whatever meets me at the door of my house, it shall be the Lord's, or, 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 I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. I got two options. One is dedication, one is consummation. Two vows that, that are standout vows even in the Hebrew. 
Vows of dedication. I've dedicated this. Remember in, in, in Jesus' day, the argument that he's having with the Pharisees, and he says, you say that whatever you have is korban. You Bible students remember that word korban? Korban means dedicated to the Lord. And the Pharisees, they had this thing about where they were not supporting their parents, their aging parents, because they said, sorry, mom and dad, what I have is korban. And then they used it themselves because I'm a Pharisee. So everything I have is dedicated to the Lord. I can't, I can't support my parents. It's korban. And Jesus says, that's bogus. <laughs> but korban simply mean, meant dedicated. And there were vows of dedication. The Nazarite vow, that's a vow of des- dedication. I'm dedicated to not cutting my hair, not drinking or touching any alcohol, and not being around dead things. That's a vow of dedication. So there are the vows of dedication, but there are also vows of consummation like the olah, the olah, which is the burnt offering. That's the word he uses, by the way. It shall be the Lord's and, or I will offer it up as an olah, an olah, a burnt offering. That's a a vow of consummation. And the reason why olah came to mean burnt offering, it doesn't actually mean burnt, but it means wholly given over to the Lord as the burnt offering was. It was the only offering of all the offerings where every ounce, every aspect of the animal that was sacrificed is burned up completely. There's nothing left. That's the Olah. So two offerings are mentioned here, two vows. One, the vow of dedication. It shall be dedicated to the Lord and or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So that, that's interesting. Now those who really... People will argue that point. No, it has to be and. Some say, no, it has to be or. Okay, well, that's not the only reason that I think that there wasn't a human sacrifice. Remember, remember through this that God abhors human sacrifice. He is never okay with human sacrifice. Not a single time in history has he approved of human sacrifice, but one, just one. But hold that thought. Now, you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're talking about Jesus, I see that as the one, but what about Abraham and Isaac? Huh? There's a story of human sacrifice. Did you read the story? No human sacrifice takes place. Yeah, yeah, but but the Lord asks Abraham to offer his son Isaac. Yes, because the Lord was proving to Abraham that Abraham trusted the Lord. Did you hear what I said? God's proving to Abraham. God didn't need the proof himself. God didn't need Abraham to prove to him that he was faithful. God knew what Abraham was gonna do. He knew the end of the story. He knew that by asking Abraham to do this, Abraham would go all the way, but Abraham needed to realize that he, when he made a commitment to the Lord, would not turn back. And so at the last moment, God says, all right, Abraham, all right, put the knife away. (laughs) You don't have to do this. Now you have shown. Now do you see that you do trust me? It's a great story, and it's such a, a picture of, of the father and the son, a father willing to sacrifice a son, and Abraham shows faith in the Lord, and the Lord stops the sacrifice. There is no sacrifice in human history of a human being that is acceptable to the Lord, as I said, but one, and I'll come back to that in just a second. But the fact that God in this story of Jephthah is silent and does not intervene when it tells us toward the end that he did to her according to the vow which he had made, 
It doesn't say God intervened like he did with Abraham. That should tell us something. The fact that he's silent, he says nothing about the vow, and that he does not intervene, that should tell us that God knew it wasn't gonna happen. But keep going. So, so a couple of things there, dedication versus consummation. The second one there was Yiftach versus Yahweh, okay? So Jephthah's vow and, and Yahweh's understanding and what took place. Third thing to notice in this story, and that is the absence of an altar, there's no altar mentioned. In fact, the sacrifice is not described. It says Jephthah kept his vow, but it does not say he killed his daughter. It does not say he carved her up and put the pieces on the altar and burned her up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now you might say, well, Rick, the Bible wouldn't say he carved her up. Wait till later in Judges. It gets graphic. He did to her according to the vow which he had made, but there's no altar mentioned. There's no altar to Yahweh, nor was there any priest of Israel who ever would have accepted a human sacrifice. There's nowhere that Jephthah could have gone to offer up his daughter. On Remember, with, with Israelite thinking, there's only one acceptable place to offer a burnt offering, at the tabernacle on the altar of burnt offering. That's the only place you could do it. That's not even mentioned here. Doesn't come into play at all. And the brutal act itself, again, is not mentioned, just that he kept his vow. So somehow, he did keep his vow. We just don't know exactly how he kept it. Look at verse 39 again. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And then it says, and she had no relations with a man. Number four, the value of virginity. The value of virginity. Very interesting in the telling of this story. It says that here, she knew no man. Now you might say, well, that's kind of redundant. If he sacrificed her, of course she knew no man. Duh, right? Why is it such a point? Why does it say over and over, let me go weep because of my virginity? She doesn't say, let me go weep because you're gonna kill me. Let me go weep for my life. Let me go weep because give me two more months of life, dad. She doesn't say that. She says, let me go to the mountains with my, with my friends to sorrow over the loss, to sorrow over my virginity. And that seems to be fully focused what's on her mind. She says it twice. Because of my virginity, verse 37, and again, because of her virginity, verse 38, and then again in verse 39, and she had no relations with a man. That seems to be of, of essence here, the value of virginity. Now listen, when a woman was set apart as a virgin olah, and what the word olah means? Burnt offering, Rick, no. It means wholly devoted to God, which the burnt offering was. But the word speaks of complete and total devotion, commitment. And, there, and when a woman was set apart as a virgin Olah, she was given wholly to God and would therefore have to remain single. 
and I think we're getting somewhere here, to mourn one's virginity wasn't because she would die a virgin, but because she must live a virgin. Because, and here's the sacrifice, she would never have children. In a culture where a woman's highest value was in childbearing, and it's sad that we've lost a sense of that, a woman's highest value was in childbearing. This was a huge personal sacrifice. This is a family sacrifice. And again, three times the virginity is referred to. The whole focus of the sacrifice in the story of Jephthah is not a sacrifice of life. It's a sacrifice of lineage. Her virginity. She would not bear a child if she had been Killed, why does it keep saying because of her virginity that that's the issue rather than her life? It would be overstating the obvious. But the story does not include death. It seems to point to celibacy. Number five, so that's the value of virginity. Number five, the custom of commemoration, which is very interesting to me as well. Verse 40 says, the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite, four days in a year. The word commemorate is tanot, and it, it also translates uh, recount. So they went for four days every year to recount the daughter, tell the story of the daughter of Jephthah. So there's a high value to this story. It also can mean lament. They went annually every four days a year to lament, and it also means speak with or talk to which if translated that way, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to talk with the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days a year. Sounds like there's a possibility here that they made an annual trek to where she was to see her and to commemorate her and to honor her and to speak with her. For two months at the outset of this story or at the point where they realize that there is a, a, a vow has been made and the commitment must be kept, she goes to the mountains with her, with her friends so that they could then be in retreat and lament her loss of motherhood, not her death. And, and that's very clear in the story. It does not say that they lamented her death. They lamented her virginity her loss of motherhood, and apparently, this goes on, verse 40 tells us it became an annual four-day retreat. It was a women's retreat in Israel. That'd be a very different women's retreat than the one we're about to have. Four days to lament and mourn, perhaps at first with the daughter of Jephthah, and then after her death, to lament and mourn the sacrifice of the daughter of Jephthah. I cannot overstate to you the value of lineage in Israel and what it really entails. And I'll just give you a brief idea from the words of Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 32, he says, learn the parable of the fig tree, fig tree being a very clear symbol of Israel in the scriptures. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things, recognize he is near at the door, and so even in this age, we say 1948, Israel became a nation. A nation reborn in a day, as Isaiah prophesied. The fig tree, the fig tree is starting to put forth its leaves. Summer is near. So there are many of us who, who believe truly that we are in the final generation because of that. 
because the fig tree Israel has, has grown again and has put forth its leaves and the end is very clearly near. That's the biggest prophetic sign in our generation. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And a generation in the Bible is about 100 years. So that's 2048, I think. But this generation, while it, it can mean two things there, this generation will not pass away, very clearly can state that the final generation of this age will be the generation when Israel is reborn, or, and it can mean this generation will not pass away, that generation speaks of the line of Israel. The word is Genoa, and it can mean a generation of time, it can mean a people. Lineage matters in Israel far more than it matters than we tend to think of it in our American culture. And so for a woman's lineage to be cut, to be over, is a big deal. That is a huge sacrifice. Custom of commemoration. Number six, daughters at the doorway. Now I told you before, burnt offering, olah, literally translates wholly given to God, 100% given over to God. That's why the burnt offering is called the Olah, because it's 100% given. Did you know that there were women who were wholly devoted to God in Israel? Women who were set apart to service at the tabernacle, not in the tabernacle, but at the doorway of the tent of meeting that gave their lives to serve at the tabernacle. Anything that was needed. You could call them virgin olahs. Women who said, I'm not gonna marry, I'm not gonna have children, I'm going to serve the Lord at the doorway of the tabernacle. Now, I, I, I'm not gonna make a whole bunch of jokes. Actually, I have none. But this was not Abby normal. <laughs> I can keep going. I mean, I'm sorry about it, but especially regarding nuns, that's a hard habit to break. There were such devoted women at the time, and the Bible describes them. Exodus 38, verse eight. Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Devoted to the Lord, that's how they spent their lives. We hear about this again. Now, it's not a pretty picture, but 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 23 tells us that Eli, the high priest, was very old, and he heard, that all, he heard all that his sons were doing to Israel. He had two sons, two idiot sons. I have no problem calling them complete and utter fools. Hophni and Phinehas. We'll meet them and talk about them when we get into 1 Samuel, not long from now, Lord willing. Hophni and Phinehas were morons. And Eli, their father, heard all his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You've all, I'm sure, heard the stories, you know, of Catholic nuns and of visiting priests and the things that, that have happened because of the sin nature of humanity. And apparently, even at the doorway of the tent of meeting, we have these two sons of the high priest themselves in line for the high priesthood, and they were taking advantage of these serving women. 
So we know something, that, that, it's an ugly scene. The only reason I mention that to you at all is just to point out that again we see an example. There were women devoted to the tabernacle. Now these women were violated by the men in high position above them. So not okaying or approving any of that obviously, but the point is the Bible acknowledges the presence of virgin olahs. Women who were fully devoted to God, that that was their life choice. Listen to this. By age and by timing, and this, this is just, this is totally Rick, so you know, I could be way off on this. I wanna tell you ahead of time so that you don't go thinking this is you know, anything other than Rick just sitting there thinking. But by age and by timing, Jephthah's daughter would have been an older woman serving at the tabernacle among those women at that time. Doesn't mean that she would have been one of those taken advantage of, but she would have been an older woman. If, if this thing is, as I think it played out, that she was wholly devoted to God, that perhaps she is one of those women now serving at the tabernacle, giving her life over, remaining a virgin all of her life to serve the Lord there at that time, which would bring me to number seven in our list, a faith fulfilled. A faith fulfilled. Stay with me on this. Hebrews chapter 11 verse one says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know that verse, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We can rattle it off. Do you know what it means? Do we recognize what it really means? Let me be clear. Our trust is not in what we know. Our faith is in who we know. That's why we say faith is the assurance of things hoped for. From a non-Yahweh perspective, from a non-Jesus perspective, if you say faith is the assurance of things hoped for, you're saying faith is hope against hope. Faith is just hoping that it turns out the way I think it will. Not with the Lord. It has nothing to do with how you think it will. Our faith is in him, which means we know it will take place because we know him. We keep faith in the Lord because we know the Lord is faithful. So I'm telling you that because it's possible here. If we're just looking historically at the placement of all these things, that Jephthah's daughter, given over to a life of full and total service and devotion to the Lord, not marrying, not having children, not continuing the family line and the joy that would have been hers otherwise, but sacrificing all that and devoted to the Lord that her devotion would have impacted the devotion of another child, a little boy named Samuel. Because at the exact time that Samuel was a little boy and his mother, Hannah, brought her to the tabernacle, by age and history, Jephthah's daughter may have been there, may have been one of those who cared for little Samuel. Now, I can't say that that's what happened. I don't know historically that that's what took place, but man, that sounds like Yahweh. That sounds like how God takes a messed up situation and, and makes it a beautiful situation. First Samuel 1.11, Hannah made a vow. Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. So, so Samuel would take the Nazarite vow. Little Samuel and again, if Jephthah's daughter was there, wouldn't it be just like the Lord to put her in charge of taking care of little Samuel as he grew up at the tabernacle? 
the next great prophet of Israel and anointer of David. Wow. Well, wherever you land on this story, whatever you think, and some of you will walk out of here saying, I disagree with Pastor Rick. I think Jephthah offered her up as a sacrifice. Others of you will walk out of here heaving a heavy sigh of thanksgiving that it didn't actually happen. But wherever you land, it ends in sorrow. This is a sorrowful story. Jephthah's only daughter, Jephthah, would now have no heir. There would be no son to follow along, no one to continue that family line. And his daughter would have no children, no marriage. Her life, in practical Israelite terms, was over from that day on. So what's the takeaway for us this morning? How do you apply such a story? Aside from what we talked about, don't, don't shoot off your mouth. I mean, that one's obvious. How do we apply this to ourselves? Why don't you turn over to Romans chapter five, verse six. Two quick things, and we're done this morning. As I said before, Romans chapter five. As I said before, there is only ever one example of an acceptable human sacrifice, only one. Jephthah's would not have been accepted by the Lord. Abraham was stopped because not human sacrifice is never acceptable to the Lord but once. Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, we could sit on that verse and not go anywhere else. Christ died for the ungodly. Look around, that's us. And at the right time, not when we were cleaned up, not when we were together, not when we were sorrowful, not when we were confessing and repentant, at the right time, while we were still helpless, Jesus died for the ungodly. And then Paul says so brilliantly here, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The one acceptable human sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But listen to me, you gotta get this. This is huge. The difference between Jephthah and Jesus is the mystery of the Trinity. The difference between Jephthah and Jesus or Jephthah and Yahweh, Jephthah and his daughter, Yahweh and Jesus, the difference is the mystery of the Trinity in the Bible. What do you mean? I mean, if you reject the Trinity, if you say, I don't believe in that, then you assume that God sacrificed his son on the cross for you. But the mystery of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Therefore, the cross was absolute self-sacrifice. That God didn't just send someone else, someone other than him, someone in his divine lineage, someone, a lower being on, on the totem pole, if you will, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So God said, well, I'm not gonna do that, but I'll send Jesus. That's not what happened. Because the mystery of the Trinity is God with us. That God gave himself. That it was absolute and total self-sacrifice. Had Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, it would not be self-sacrifice so much as sacrifice of another. Yeah, painful to him, but it still wasn't himself. And on the cross, God died. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God gave himself for you. The only acceptable human sacrifice was absolute, total, devoted, consumed self-sacrifice in the crucifixion of Jesus. That, my friends, is how much God loves you. Final application for us. If it doesn't hurt, it isn't sacrifice. If it doesn't hurt, it isn't sacrifice. I'll end in Psalm 15, verse one. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, listen to me, he swears to his own hurt. He swears to his own hurt and does not change, does not turn back. He swears to his own hurt. If it doesn't hurt, it isn't sacrifice. So when Paul says, therefore, Romans 12, verse one, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. If it doesn't hurt, it's not sacrifice. That to follow Jesus is an invitation into self-sacrifice as he died for you so you live for others. So we put other people ahead of us. And I will do that except when they offend me. And I will do that except when they do dumb stuff to me. I will do that except for those who have hurt me. If it doesn't hurt, it isn't sacrifice. And we are invited because of the sacrifice of God in Christ Jesus. We are invited to follow suit in lives of self-sacrifice. Now, don't go off trying to be a martyr for the cause. You know, don't join some group of ascetics with boards walking around going, ole, ole, requiem, boom. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. And over time in history and in the church, there have been the ascetics who thought, that's what you do. Gotta hurt yourself, gotta whip yourself. Martin Luther would beat the snot out of himself because he had to self-sacrifice. That is not, that's not what we're saying here. What I'm really saying to you Love God more than all other people or anything in your life. Love Jesus more than your own life because that's how he loves you. And if you love 
Jesus more than your own life, there are times it's going to hurt. And it's going to require sacrifice. Don't turn back. Because the day is coming when the tabernacle of God will be among men. He will dwell among them. They will be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Sacrifice, painful sacrifice will be a thing of the past. But for now, follow Jesus. Love God. Don't turn back even if it hurts. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Pray, Lord, that you will now take all these words, take this study, and give us that application. Help us to comprehend, Lord, the Trinity, how amazing it is what you did. But help us also, Father, to have the faith, the trust in you, the will to, Lord, live even to our own hurt because we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 